Okay, so if you'll open up to Genesis 3. And uh, what we'll do is that we'll look first, and it won't take us actually very long, at Christ in the Pentateuch. Now, there are whole books written about Christ in the first five books. And um, certainly, if you introduce what's called typology, which we'll take a little look at, then you can fill out as much space as you care to fill out. Because you can make types out of anything. You know, you can do what you want with typology. It's a very elastic kind of thing. Um, but I don't include typology as, uh, as indications of Christ in the Pentateuch. And I'll explain why when we get to that. But we're all familiar with uh, this text in Genesis 3.15. I've already covered quite a bit of it. And uh, all I want to do is call your attention again to this prophecy. Remember that this text, or this prophecy, was uttered by God to the serpent. And so he was informing the serpent about what would happen to the serpent. He wasn't informing the man and the woman about what would happen to them. Okay? That's very important. It's often missed. But it's very important that we understand that. Whatever is said in this text is said to Satan. And it speaks about the fact that, if I can just paraphrase it, it speaks to the fact that because Satan had used the woman to overthrow the relationship between God and humanity and basically destroy that and seek the destruction of the man and the woman and thus everyone who comes after them, that God would use the instrument that Satan used. He would use the woman. And he would use the woman, not necessarily Eve, but a daughter of Eve, to overthrow, finally, the serpent himself, to destroy him. And that is uh, basically what the prediction is about. He says at first, I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Uh, We find out that this is a single seed Uh, because of what follows next. He, singular, will bruise your, singular, head. You, singular, will bruise his heel. So here the seed, although the word seed, zera, can certainly and often does uh, mean a, a plurality, like descendants. Here, even though there are many scholars and good men and my elders and betters, that believe that the first part of this verse talks about the line of uh, saints and the line of sinners or those who are sons uh, sons and daughters of God and those who are children of the devil. You can't get that out of the verse. That's actually reading uh, New Testament texts back into this verse. 
That's not what it says. It just says between um, between uh, you and the woman. The woman here is probably not just Eve, but the the woman, uh, womankind, and then also um, you know the woman who will bring forth the vanquisher. Between your seed, I take that as singular, and her seed, singular, Christ. That's the messianic importance of this text. If you say that the seed of the woman is, uh, is just descendants or the saints, you know, then you take Christ, I think you take Christ out of this verse. Because then who is the he? The he must be the seed. Now, it's very possible, certainly if you read Genesis 5 and all of the genealogies of the Old Testament where it says that uh, so-and-so had a son, a begat so-and-so, yes, and they died and whatever. It's the man. It's, it's the men's line that's usually um, viewed. But here, it is the seed of the woman. That's a very unusual, in fact, unique way of talking about things. And so maybe that's an intimation of a virgin birth. I think we can at least say, oh yeah, I could see that. I mean, you have to know about the virgin birth in order to, to see it, but at the same time, I mean, see the woman, you know, you might, with a little bit of creative thinking, come up with a virgin birth, yes? Um, it's within the bounds of the words that are used. So what's going on in Genesis 3.15? A prediction of the doom of Satan. And this doom is going to be brought about by the woman's seed. Who is Christ? So Christ here is pictured as a vanquisher, not as a redeemer. Now, I've preached several sermons from this text uh, and one of the sermons that I preached was uh, entitled The Promised Redeemer. Good Christmas sermon. <laughs> and I don't, I don't uh, regret doing that. I knew what I was doing when I called it that because I deliberately, when I was preaching, I wanted to talk about the gospel and I wanted to say that the, the one who... Was, would vanquish Satan would also be the saviour of mankind. You see? I wanted to bring that in. That's a sermon. In a sermon you can do that because in a sermon you have certain goals that uh, you can bring into the text and other scriptures that you can bring in because you're trying to fix on uh, not just the exposition of that text but on a certain point that you want to make and drive home. Uh, but when we're doing... Um, just exegesis of a text to find out first and foremost what it meant to the people that first read it and to the ancients, then you can't read the New Testament back into the Old. You have to stay there in the garden and ask, okay, well, they didn't know about the cross, they didn't know about Christ, they didn't know about the resurrection, they didn't know about any of this stuff. So, how would they have taken this? 
Well, they would have taken it as somebody's coming. That it's going to be a human being who is going to defeat Satan. We can also take this as an intimation. The fact that it's going to be a special human being, a special seed, you know, a particular person, uh, indicates, although we are inferring again, but it does indicate, I think, that the vanquishing of Satan is no easy matter. Satan's got a foothold. Can I use that? He's a serpent. But um, I think at this point he's maybe still got feet. So he's got a foothold uh, in uh, the rest of history until the vanquisher comes. Uh, from this, you can see that um, you, can, you can go into uh, other passages of Scripture, Job, for example, Satan having power over Job in the world, and uh, certainly Paul's writings, um, 1 Peter chapter 3, which talks about, is it verse 18, it talks about beware, you know, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Uh, Paul refers to him as the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. This guy's strong. He's powerful. And he didn't just grow in might. He had that power in the garden. Um, So, something happened. There was a transference of power that happened. Adam was given dominion and, and power as a vice regent, but then the image was not taken away but marred and Adam's relationship to his creator was tarnished greatly and would get worse and worse. Uh, and he would be under the thrall to some extent of Satan so that we, j- we only read one more chapter and we have a murder and then we have at the end of that chapter someone bragging about a murder. And mankind has been in that state ever since. So, that first text then uh, it talks about Christ as not a redeemer but as a vanquisher, I'll call him. You can't even call him a deliverer. Why can't you call him a deliverer? Because no deliverance is promised. Because this is, this is not spoken to the humans. It's spoken to Satan. You will get your comeuppance. That's it. Alright, so the next text is in um, chapter 22 of Genesis. <clears throat> And this has to do, of course, with um, Abraham taking his son up the mount. And verse 15 says this. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And look at verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. You say, well, what's so special about that? Um, the word descendants is the same word as seed. So why did they translate it descendants in verse 17 and seed in verse 18? It's because of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. So we'll go to Galatians chapter 3 and see what Paul says and then I'll have to say something about um, my methodology here. Galatians chapter 3 says this, um, verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. We've visited that text before and we'll come back to it again. Now to Abraham and his seed, notice they've capitalized the S, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. So what's Paul doing there? Paul is saying that although you have a collective noun, Zera is a collective noun, um, in Genesis 22, in verse 18, it seems anyway, verse 18 he's referring to, that Christ is narrowing it to one person. Oh sorry, Paul is narrowing it to one person under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's saying the seed that he's spoken of in that verse is not the descendants, but the descendant, or the one person, Christ. Do you see that? Now, how does he know that? Well, he knows it because he's inspired. Um, verse 29 of that same chapter says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Uh, We'll go into this uh, another time when we deal with this chapter. But just to say we are Abraham's seed because of the promise of the third prong of the Abrahamic covenant, which is, and in you will all the families of the earth be blessed, or all the nations will be blessed. Do you see? And that has come through uh, Jesus So, Paul can do that. It's not a, he's not reinterpreting the text. He can do that. Now, as uh, some of you quicker ones will uh, be thinking, yeah, but you're going to the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. You just said, don't do that. And that's true. But notice where, what I'm doing. All I'm doing is I'm going to a, a very, very clear text where Paul is telling you that the seed there is singular and identifies the seed of, as Christ. Do you see? 
So I'm not actually expounding anything. All I'm doing is going to the text and saying that's what it says. It's a, it's a direct quotation. It's a C1. Yes? Uh, what normally happens when people start reinterpreting the Old... Oh, oh, sorry. Using the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament is they reinterpret the Old Testament. Well, I've not reinterpreted anything. I've just said that's what it says. So in that, a case like that, that's not a problem. Another example would be um, going to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Yes? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his... Um, I can't, rem- can't remember what it says. <laughs> his what? Glory. His glory, as of the only begotten of the Father. Um, and then verse 18... You know, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, from my translation, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him, and that's, uh, uh, that is Jesus, uh, who is called, um, you know, the, the God manifest in the flesh in other places. So, um, in John chapter 1, again, you're not reinterpreting anything. All you're doing is you're finding out that not only was the, Father, God, and the Spirit active in Genesis chapter 1 in creation, but the Son was too, the Word. Do you see? You're not interpreting anything and and saying, okay, yeah, I can see something in here which I think it says this and I I can shove it back in that context. You're just saying, oh, okay, that was going on too. You've got some added information. That's what uh, we're doing with the Galatians passage. Uh, It is certainly not clear that Abraham understood that. It's not clear that Abraham understood that this was a prophecy of Christ. So please understand that. We know that it is. Um, Not so sure that Abraham did at that point. Now, it is true that Abraham must have seen something of of it because in John chapter 8 remember that altercation between Christ and the Pharisees where uh, they are challenging challenging who he's from you know and his authority Um, and he says towards the end of John chapter 8 that uh, if you were Abraham's seed you would believe me because he uh, saw my day. You see? And um, there it appears as though certainly Abraham understood something of a coming redeemer. There's no doubt about that. You have to get at least that from what Jesus says. But it's certainly also possible to go a little bit further and say that Abraham understood that through him this Redeemer would come. And also that this Redeemer that would come through him was the very same Redeemer as in Genesis 3.15, putting those two things together. We're not going way out in the left field. We're not uh, in the realms of huge uh, speculation when we're saying those two things. We would be speculating and going far too far if we said Abraham knew that Jesus of Nazareth 
was the Christ and would die on a Roman cross and be resurrected again. If you'd have said, uh, hey Abraham, uh, have you heard of the Romans? He would say, who? The Romans weren't in existence when Abraham was living. So, you know, the cross wasn't uh, a symbol of of, uh, torture and death. Not for another 1400 years after Abraham lived. So it's certainly wrong to do that. I hope that you understand that the the first interpretation where we say Abraham understood that a redeemer would come, yes? That's not changing the picture of the Old Testament. But the second interpretation which says that Abraham knew Jesus would come and die on a Roman cross, that really changes things. You see, that brings the New Testament gospel into the book of Genesis. And you can't do that. But anyway, that we know from the Apostle Paul that that is uh, a text that speaks of Christ. By the way, I should say that in Genesis 15 and verse 4, God does intimate that seed here not, does not just mean descendants, but means an individual. And so it, they, that is already there in, uh, in what God has said. Verse 4 of uh, chapter 15 says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not hurt uh, sorry, shall not be your heir, I don't know where I get the word hurt from, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. One, one person. Do you see? And so there is that singularity that is built into, and so Abraham may well, when, he, when God later on said, and, and through your seed, okay, the world will be blessed. He may have understood, yeah, that through Isaac and then a particular seed after that. He may have understood that. But that's as far as we can go. There's much more information that's got to be accumulated and sifted through. And it is a big mistake for us to read Genesis in light of stuff that was written after Genesis. Okay, we only have what Genesis tells us they knew. So we've got to stick with Genesis and let the story unfold. If we're not careful, we'll we'll think, oh yeah, I know how this ends and I'll start reading stuff into it. Now I'm going to miss what God says further on because I've already made up my mind what the story's all about. That happens all the time. Genesis 49, this is of course Jacob. And uh, verse 10 particularly. In fact, no, let me, let me read verse 9. Uh, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, or the one to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the, the obedience of the Amim, the people or the nations. So the one who is going to be uh, a blessing to the nations here is identified as somebody who is going to be a king, he has a scepter, a lawgiver, and uh, who comes through the tribe of Judah. So we're getting more specific here, you see, but we don't get this information until Genesis 49. If you'll turn now to the book of Numbers and chapter 24... And we saw this last time, but it was actually a passage that I, I failed to read out to you. <clears throat> so Numbers chapter 24, and uh, I will read from verse, um, verse 5. This is Balaam. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, note that, He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Does that remind you of anything? Any of that um, remind you of other bits that you read? (laughs) Well, that last bit, blessed is he that blesses you, cursed is he that curses you, that's from Genesis 12. That was uttered to Abraham. But what about the lion stuff? We've just read about it in the book of Numbers. And sorry, in the book of Genesis 49. Let me read that passage again to you. You don't have to go there if you don't want to. But Genesis 49, I'll read it out again. It says in verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Balaam says, he bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? What's going on? Balaam is quoting that text from Genesis 49. Does Balaam know he's doing that? No. But God has put that, or part of that prophecy in Balaam's mouth. Do you see that? So we know that there is the the person that Balaam is talking about is the person that Jacob is talking about. So this is more information. And why is this important? Well, because of the next utterance of Balaam that we did read out last time. Uh, Verse 17. 
I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So, again, there's a scepter. That's also in Genesis 49. Balaam's talking about the same person. Do you see? But he adds a little bit more information here um, because he says that he's in the future. He's far off in the future. I, I, uh, I see him, but he's not now. He's not near. He's, he's off in the future. Do you see? So that's more information. Uh, notice also, just taking a note, we'll do this in the next course. He batters the brow of Moab. Uh, Moab or Edom is, uh, uh, well, modern day Jordan, most of it. Uh, southern Syria, modern day Jordan. Okay, that's it. That's it as far as uh, Christ in the Pentateuch. Any clear um, understanding of Christ in the Pentateuch from the passages. So what we find out is that he is a a vanquisher. Let's see, let me use blue here. So we find out that Christ uh, will vanquish the serpent. Also, that um, he is human. Now, of course, he's not called Christ in any of this. I'm just, I'm kind of just using that terminology. We find he's human. You say, duh. Yeah, but it's important that, that we start off where they're starting off. This is not an angel. This is somebody from among uh, Mankind who is going to overthrow Satan and his dominion. Uh, we find out that he's also he's going to come through Abraham. Further, we find out that he's going to come through Judah. That he's going to be a king. And also a lawgiver. It's important that we bring these two things together because the prophets bring these two things together. Okay? And that from their perspective they better not look for him around the corner because he's not coming for a long time. So this is the information that we have. Uh, Please notice what's missing here. What do you normally associate with Christ? But salvation uh, clearly spelled out as forgiveness of sins, as uh, cleansing from sin, as uh, the enmity between God man and God cleared out of the way of reconciliation between 
sinners and a holy God. That's not spelled out here. This is just a king who is going to vanquish Satan and he's going to come through this line and through him the world's going to be blessed and Israel's going to have a special place. Doesn't take too much of a um, reach, does it, to say that, okay, yeah, well, if he's going to be a blessing and if he's going to um, give Israel prosperity and so on, then clearly there must be some kind of salvation going on. Yeah? We can say that. And last week, we looked in the book of Deuteronomy and we saw, I think we did do this, didn't we? In chapter 30 in Deuteronomy. You weren't here last week. But um, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you write that down, the first eight verses, we saw that there is a, a prophecy there about the cleansing of the heart and the Holy Spirit being brought. Now, it's not connected clearly with this character. But a promise of salvation is made. And it's, it's, it's tied to the latter days. Look at, well, you don't need to look at it if you're not there. Numbers 14, uh, sorry, 24-14. Balaam says, And now indeed I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people, that's Israel, will do to your people, Moab, in the latter days. So, if you look at the term latter days, as it's used in the Pentateuch, you will see that it it does talk about the time of the end. And uh, in Deuteronomy, it takes on this purpose of of salvation, particularly for Israel. So, that you can feed into this. Okay? You can make, you, you can get your theology of Christ from the Pentateuch with this, but then you can push, uh, salvation into it and it fits you don't have it clear you don't you can't actually say dogmatically that salvation is going to come through Christ but you know there's a connection do you like doing uh, Bible study this way or do you find it frustrating but you see what you see what it's doing though it's forcing you to stick with the text. It's forcing you to think and, and maybe um, see things with new eyes without thinking, well, I know all about that. I've been to Sunday school and so on. Because most of you, I bet, would have just thought that Christ in the Pentateuch, oh yeah, he's all over the place and uh, yeah, it's really clear. You know, and, and, and the salvation message is there. No, it isn't. easier for me to understand why they expected their 
their savior to be a physical king and a physical yes. ruler instead of... Yeah, and, and we're not even in the prophets yet. By the time uh, I, I've stopped in the prophets, we have a juggernaut going that uh, there is such a strong expectation of just that thing that you will enter the New Testament, I hope, I, I predict, <laughs> you'll enter the New Testament with a mindset quite similar to the disciples that Jesus had. And you will understand why in uh, Acts chapter 1, after the risen Jesus has taught them about the kingdom, Acts 1-3, uh, uh, that they ask this dumb question. Have you come at this time to restore the kingdom to Israel? That expectation comes from their understanding, not just, folks, of Genesis through Deuteronomy. It comes from their understanding of the prophets. Uh, It comes from their understanding of Jesus' own teaching. Jesus has not done anything to correct their understandings. And he doesn't, in his reply to that question, he doesn't correct them either. He just says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He says, it's not for you to know when. Golden opportunity. It's going to happen. But a golden opportunity for him to say, I don't believe you guys. Like I was teaching you, I'm, you know, the world's best teacher. Okay? With him for three, three and a half years. Him teaching particularly about the kingdom as the risen Christ and still they don't get it. No, guys, no. They did get it. They had the Bible, the weight of the Old Testament, which was the only Bible they had behind them and the expectation and the picture that it had built up in their minds. And they asked that question in faith. And Jesus' answer was just, well, it's not for you to know. So, I'm... I'm, uh, heartened by your response and I hope that all of you see that. I hope that you're patient enough to just let the Bible unfold. All right. Uh, What about typology though? Because the problem with you, Hennebury, is that you don't understand typology. Because if you understood typology, you would see that there are loads and loads of types of Christ in the Pentateuch, in the sacrificial system, for example. You would understand that when Abraham went up there in Genesis 22 to offer Isaac, you would understand that when Abraham said, the Lord himself will supply the offering 
and then lo and behold, the lamb, uh, well, the ram is caught in a thicket, which he sacrifices that ram. That Abraham would have thought, of course, this is all about typology. Yes, the ram, of course, it prefigures Christ. Or would he? Would he probably be thinking, oh, I'm really glad that I'm going to sacrifice the ram instead of my son. And that's about as far as he thought about it. Almost certainly, that's in the context. Um, There is no reason to think that Abraham knew any more than that. Now, I've gone through that passage with you and I've said Abraham's faith drove his reason and because his faith drove his reason and faith should drive our reasoning too, because that was the case, he knew that if he killed Isaac that God would have to raise him up again. But that's what he was expecting, do you see? He wasn't expecting a, a ram in the thicket. He wasn't expecting God to call from out of heaven. He wasn't. Uh, So that type doesn't work. The fact that Hebrews chapter 11 points to it as a type is great for readers of Hebrews. But since Abraham didn't have the book of Hebrews, and since the disciples didn't have the book of Hebrews, And since nobody in the Old Testament had the book of Hebrews to tell them it was a type, how did they know it was a type? We don't know, folks. We can't say that they knew. The Bible doesn't tell us and therefore we should not infer it. By inferring it, what we're doing is bringing what we know and saying that's what they knew. But that's, that's illogical. That's, a, that's an anachronism. You understand what that is. An anachronism is something that goes against time. Anna against uh, Kronos time. An anachronism. Um, something that, that, that um, distorts it and uh, distorts our understanding because we are, we are saying that, uh, you know, they knew something back then when the, that they didn't know. An anachronism would be something like uh, saying that um, uh, Newton, you know, got his calculations wrong. Uh, he should have gone to the, uh, um, the Hubble telescope. Well, you know, he should have had the Hubble telescope and looked down that. Yeah, well, he didn't have it to look down, do you see? Or oh, not the Mount, the Mount Wilson one or whatever the one is um, down in Los Angeles that uh, Hubble looked through. Anyway, I mean, that's an anachronism. We don't want to be guilty of anachronisms as Bible readers. What about another type, though? What about the Exodus? What about the, the lamb that was slain at Passover, Exodus chapter 12? You know, you take the lamb, you will, uh, you'll kill it, you'll daub its blood on the lintel and the, the doorposts and so on. What about that? 
Yeah. And God will pass over the door. He won't let the destroying angel in. Fine. That's as much as we're told. What we need in order to say that they understood it was a type was that, and, by the way, this lamb prefigures my son who's going to come. But we don't read that in the book of Exodus. That's something we bring. So, if we're not going to do that, if we're going to just hold our, uh, you know, the intensity of our passion for for Jesus, uh, wanting to find him in Exodus chapter 12, we need to understand that if we were actually experiencing Exodus chapter 12, we wouldn't be thinking that. The only reason that we're not thinking that is because we've got the whole Bible, but the people back in Exodus didn't. And, and the, the power of John the Baptist preaching in uh, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I hope you can see, he's drawing that parallel there. But most, a lot of people didn't see it. They didn't say, Oh, Jesus, okay, Jesus is the Lamb there in Exodus 12. That prefigures Jesus. Jesus is going to die for us. Really? Is that what they think? Have you read the Gospels recently? Have you read what the disciples did when he told them over and over again he was going to go to Jerusalem and die? Have you read what Peter did when Jesus told him that? This will not happen to you, Lord. Well, if he'd have understood the type, he wouldn't have got in Jesus' way, would he? He didn't understand the type. wasn't part of the fund of biblical knowledge that the disciples had. This is going to, well, I'll bring this out clearly when we get to the third course. We'll go slowly through the Gospels, okay, and we'll, we'll show you the expectation that was created by Jesus' teaching and how the disciples took it. Okay, so that's the first part of what I wanted to do. The second part of what I want to do now is to get boring, just for a while. Now, I think this is really interesting. You might think, you know, kill me now. But it has to do with these books here. Okay, I'm a bookie person. And... uh, All I want to do here is read you some passages from these books which uh, they present a different perspective. And I just want you to hear what some of these other authors say. And then I'm going to add some of my uh, remarks to them. So the first author is uh, an Australian Old Testament scholar called uh, Graham Goldsworthy. And this is an influential book called According to Plan, The Unfolding Revelation of God in the Bible. Um, It also has a sub-subtitle called An Introductory Biblical Theology. There's some good stuff in this book. 
Goldsworthy is a very influential scholar in uh, particularly reformed churches. Uh, Goldsworthy. Yeah. Okay, so the first thing I want to do is quote you uh, one, uh, something he says on page 146. He says this, a simple thing that he says. <clears throat> Towards the bottom of the page he says, God cannot go back on his word. God cannot go back on his word. To which I say, Amen. That's what I've been teaching. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. Now, when, when uh, a person says that a, this, uh, a person A can't go back on their word, let's examine that. What does that actually mean? What, what do you take that to mean? Toby can't go back on his word. What does that mean? Toby has given his word about a specific thing and his words describe that thing and they create an expectation in that person about that particular thing that has been described by the words that Toby has used. Don't throw the, don't say I'm going to throw that baby out the, throw, your, throw you out the window, because then you have to do it. Well, <laughs> if you like. But uh, if, if Toby says something to his kids that makes a promise about a particular thing, okay, then, um, and he changes his word, okay, then he hasn't kept his word. All right? He hasn't. Now, he can, he can add some other stuff, but he's got to keep his word. He's got to deliver what, the, uh, what he said he'd deliver. Is that what Goldsworthy says about God? Well, he seems to, but let me read you some other passages here. Here's uh, page 50 of the same book. And uh, listen to this. The one problem we have in the interpretation of the Bible is the failure to interpret the texts by the definitive event of the gospel. This has its outworking in both directions. What went before Christ in the Old Testament, as well as what comes after him, finds its meaning in him. So the Old Testament must be understood in its relationship to the gospel event. What that relationship is can only be determined from the witness of the New Testament itself. So what's he telling you to do? By the New Testament, isn't he? And particularly by the gospel, the event of the cross. Now, folks, it's perhaps not as clear because we've only done the first five books of the Bible. But what has been clear so far is that God's made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that is everlasting and it includes a land and it's a specific land and it's a specific people he's going to put in the land and that's Israel. And it's an unconditional covenant. 
In other words, uh, as far as the obligation that God places on himself is concerned, he must fulfill it. He must fulfill it. He entered into it. Um, now, what, uh, what he's saying here is that, well, hold on a minute. Hold on. We need to just, you know, wait a second. Go into the New Testament first because the New Testament will actually tell you what that really meant. I'll read a little bit more here. Page 66. We must conclude that a method of interpretation that demands that the promises of the Old Testament be literally fulfilled so that there is exact correspondence between what is promised and what eventually comes to pass does not fit the evidence of the Bible. Of course, there are many details of fulfillment in the New Testament that exactly correspond to the promise. Such literal correspondence of a few details does not establish a principle of literal interpretation. Rather, it illustrates the the different principle that God accommodates himself to human history when he reveals himself. If God chooses to reveal his purposes progressively, we can be sure that he has a reason and that it is for our good that he does so. Now what's he doing? Now he's telling you that you can't interpret the Bible literally. Some of it you can, but not a lot of it. Okay? And you can't, particularly the prophecies of the Old Testament are not going to be fulfilled literally. Okay? Page 82. An important part of biblical theology is to try to understand how the promises given in the Old Testament are actually fulfilled in the New. In other words, the Christian's use of the Old Testament is guided by the way we see its message relating to Christ and through him to us. Is it? I rather thought it was guided by the words that God chose to use. See, the problem is, you see, if you say that the Old Testament can only be understood by the New, and that's what he is saying, nobody in the Old Testament understood the Old Testament. (laughs) Not Not even the first people that believed in Jesus could understand it because they didn't have the New Testament. In fact, it just is a matter of historical fact that nobody in the first century apart from maybe one or two very fortunate people, had a whole New Testament. Augustine, who lived several hundred years after the writing of the New Testament, did not have a complete New Testament in his possession. They were rare. I mean, comparatively. Um, page 130 131 the semi-nomadic wanderings of Abraham and his descendants in Canaan did not serve God's purposes of revelation fully enough 
Throughout the Old Testament, possession of the land is presented as a shadow of the future reality of living as God's people in his kingdom. And the kingdom's going to be the church. Is it? Have we talked about shadows here? Have you ever read anything about shadows? Where's he getting that from? Is he getting it from the Old Testament? If he's not getting it from the Old Testament, and he's not, then nobody in the Old Testament times got it either. What this does is it commits a terrible, I think it's a, I'll call it a fallacy. Okay? And that fallacy is that the Old Testament actually wasn't written to the people that got it, that first wrote it or received it. It was actually really written for us. It's like, um, you know, so I'm a spaceman and I, I come down on my ship a thousand years ago and I write a letter to um, Paul Luttrell, okay? But Paul Luttrell isn't going to be born for another 2,000 years. So all these people are reading this letter, but this letter's kind of in a code. Do you see? It, it seems to say one thing, but uh, what's going to happen is that when Paul Luttrell shows up, lo and behold, I'm going to zoom down and give him another letter, and that other letter is going to explain the first letter. Do you see that really, all those people who thought that letter was for them, and were reading it and thought they understood it, actually didn't understand it, and couldn't have understood it. Because it really wasn't for them. It was actually only for Paul Luttrell, the person who had the interpretation from the second letter to interpret the first letter, do you see? That's what these people are doing. They're saying that God actually prevaricated when he did that. Now, I'm not going to read you all of this, but um, I've, I've got two quotations from this one, okay? I have a re- big review of it if you want to read the review. Uh, page 431 in this book This is uh, G.K. Beale, A New Testament Biblical Theology. And uh, he says this. Listen to this. Perhaps one of the most striking features of Jesus' kingdom is that it appears not to be the kind of kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament and expected by Judaism. He's saying here that the people, all of the expectations raised by the Old Testament in the covenants, they raised a false expectation. What would you think about a God who told you stuff that he didn't really mean? By the way, if God acted like that for three quarters of the Bible, why would you think that he would be any different in the bit that you believe literally? And that you have to believe literally if you're going to be saved. The odds are he doesn't mean what he says to you in the gospel. He means something else. You just don't have the interpretive letter yet. Okay? Maybe you'll get up to heaven. Well, you won't get up to heaven. Maybe you'll just land in hell. And uh, 
you'll cry out, well, God, how come I'm in hell? I've trusted Jesus. And God will say to you, yeah, but I didn't really mean that. What this really meant was something else. By the way, he'd be, he'd be uh, and I'm not saying this against the God of the Bible. You know, I've been teaching you that he means what he says. But he would be, if he did that, and he was the kind of God that is described here, he'd be true to form, wouldn't he? Yeah? Well, this Islam is honest. They think God is fickle. Yes. Uh, page 830. This book's over a thousand pages long. Page 830 uh, says this. Uh, did I get the right thing here? Uh, oh, here we are. Just as Israel had its book from God, so does the new Israel, the church, have its book, which is an already not yet eschatological unpacking of the meaning of Israel's book. So in other words, God, God gave a book to Israel that it couldn't understand. But he gave another book to the church that not only it could understand its book, but it, by it he could understand Israel's book too. What do you think of a character like that? I told you, you know, is God disingenuous? Does he speak in ambiguity? Are the covenants ambiguous? You can't be, you see. We even read in the New Testament, if you make a covenant, even though it's a man's covenant, no one disannuls it or changes it. And uh, finally, um, this is a recent book, Kingdom Through Covenant. It's been very influential. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham, they're Southern Baptist scholars. These are Reformed scholars, Presbyterians. Uh, this guy's an Anglican, I believe. <clears throat> and again, just a few quotations here so you can see. Um, page 34. <clears throat> Biblical theology as a hermeneutical discipline attempts to exegete texts in their context and then, in the light of the entire canon, that's the entire Bible, to examine the unfolding nature of God's plan and carefully think through the relationship between before and after in that plan which culminates in Christ. Sounds very pious. And by culminates in Christ, they mean the cross and the resurrection. So he's saying again, you look at texts like Genesis 15, you exegete it, but then you, then you go back to it in light of the whole of the Bible. And then you read that, that into it. And you read it particularly in light of the first coming of Christ. Well, Israel didn't get the land in the first coming of Christ. The Romans had the land. And Israel got kicked out of it a little bit later. So what about the Abrahamic covenant? Oh, don't worry, they deal with it. Um, the next quotation is uh, page 85. I've just got two more. Uh, 
page 85, says this. As uh, talking about progressive revelation and fuller meaning in Scripture, that's called, uh, by the Latin term, sensus plenior, because you've got to have a nice terminology for it. As more revelation was given over time and through later authors, we discover more of God's plan and where that plan is going. Well, I've been telling you that, that there's an eschatology and teleology built into the covenants that tell you where it's going. It is for this reason that the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament becomes definitive in helping us interpret the details of the Old Testament. Since later revelation brings with it a greater clarity and understanding. Not always it doesn't. Not always it doesn't, I assure you. There's plenty that the New Testament doesn't tell us about things that happen in the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us more clarity on it. Uh, in doing systematic theology, uh, many people will go to the Old Testament for texts um, just as much as the New Testament because the Old Testament has clearer texts about the power of God, the love of God, the, you know, the Trinity and things like that as far as bringing texts together. Um, final quotation here. Page 706, this is a big book too. This is about the covenants. There is a sense in which we agree with Michael Horton, he's a reformed theologian, that Israel forfeited the promise of the land because of her disobedience, hence the reason for the exile. However, as the biblical covenants unfold, it becomes clear that God must provide a greater than Israel, an obedient son, who will keep the provisions of the covenant, who will not fail, and who will bring all of God's promises to pass, including the land promise. But folks, if you think that he's saying that the land promise is going to be given to Israel, think again. In Christ, we now receive the promised inheritance as Abraham's spiritual seed. In fact, as many have noted, Paul develops the Old Testament emphasis on the land in terms of our, the church's, inheritance and our adoption viewed salvifically, that is, through salvation, and cosmically. What's he done? He's just taken with one hand what he gave with the other. He said the covenant promises have not been rescinded, but they've been what? Spiritualized, changed. Um, so as we finish this um, this course don't go down that road you don't have to you don't have to just be patient the great thing about um, the Bible is that you can read it you start at the front okay, and you can actually read it to the end, like a book. Because that's what you do when you read books. God gave us a book. It's made up of books that don't think that God is unclear in the first part of the book. He's not. He's very clear. In fact, he's so clear 
that he swore oaths in covenants to reinforce the fact that God's words, or God's actions, sorry, equal God's words. He will do what he said he will do. Okay, any questions or observations before we close? I have a question. Yes. Um, so it seems like it seems like you're saying that you shouldn't look at, I know this is probably not what you're saying, but you shouldn't look at the New Testament and then view from that vantage point the Old Testament and see how God was working or how God, you know, how Christ is in the Pentateuch. Or how, you know, although it doesn't call the serpent Satan in Genesis, you know, you can look from the vantage point of the New Testament mm-hmm. and you can look back and say, well, see, he's the serpent of old. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, that's Satan. Right. So if I were Abraham or if I were someone having only, you know, only the Pentateuch, I couldn't say necessarily that serpent is Satan. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm here, and now that I have the New Testament, I mm-hmm. can take that and I can look back and I can go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's what God was talking about. Mm-hmm. You're not saying that that's wrong. You're saying No, I'm not, because I already gave you an example of that, that. Um, from Galatians, where Christ identifies the seed in Genesis 22, or Paul, sorry, identifies the seed in Genesis 22:18 as Christ. But it's a direct, you you have to reinterpret what Paul says and you don't have to reinterpret what Genesis says. You just get some added information. And when in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where um, the Apostle John identifies the serpent of old as being the dragon, the devil, and Satan, he's only adding a little bit of information. Do you see? He's not changing the meaning of the of Genesis. He's okay, just saying so this is who it was. So essentially, it's not changing. There's elaboration, but there's not there's not a change. Of that's the correct. And I'm not against that. But the problem is that's not what these guys were doing. These guys were saying you interpret the Old Testament by the New Testament and by the event of Christ. Now, folks, even so far, okay, covenant promises. Okay? Land. This land has been described in Genesis 15. You, you, you're told where it is, what it is. Abraham was in it. And Israel, in the land. Okay? These are irrevocable covenants. And then also we've seen another one. This one, the priesthood. Numbers 25. We did, saw this last week. You'll have to read Numbers 25. Um, But uh, Phineas was given a covenant of an everlasting priesthood. Okay? Phineas didn't enter into it and say, oh, okay, I'll I'll agree to do something. There was none none of that. He didn't do anything. Well, he'd done something before, but he wasn't expecting a covenant to be made. That was God entering into that himself. So these are the promises, and they say that you've got to interpret these promises by the first coming of Christ well hold on a minute Israel didn't get the land at the first coming of Christ the church started just after the first coming of Christ after the descent of the Holy Spirit and God started dealing with the church going out to Gentiles it started with Israel but it then went out to the church to the Gentiles 
Okay, and Paul in Romans 11 said that he has, uh, in a sense, he's gone to the Gentiles and uh, he's, um, you know, he's not dealing with Israel anymore. And the priesthood, well, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And before that, the veil of the temple was rent in twain (laughs) when Jesus was crucified. So, um, what are we going to do with these promises if we're going to interpret them by the first coming? What will we have to do? We'll have to spiritualize them. And that's exactly what they do. It's because they interpret the Old Testament, particularly by the gospel event, what Goldsworthy calls the gospel event, that they have to go back and spiritualize it. If they would say, actually, most of the uh, Old Testament prophecies that we've looked at, the, the literal king and a scepter ruling over Israel and blessing the nations and so on, and the priesthood, they would say, ah, that's not fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. It's going to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. And if you interpret it by the second coming of Christ, you can take it literally. But you see, this is, as we will see, this is the great faux pas of um, evangelical theologians generally. They interpret the Old Testament through the wrong lens. And that's what forces them to spiritualize. You see? In other words, there's there's nothing wrong if you're using a C1, if you're using a direct statement in the New Testament that adds content to a C1 in the Old Testament without changing that C1, then it's okay to add that information. Do you see? As long as you say what I've said. I understand I can do that, but the people who first had that revelation, they probably couldn't do it. They didn't know that. So if there was someone that was given a prophecy in the Old Testament that did not see Christ's day, and then Christ fulfilled the prophecy that those people were given, although you could see the fulfillment of the prophecy and the application to the old or and the application to the Old Testament prophecy that was given in Christ. Um, those people that were in the Old Testament that were given the prophecy could not see it that way. And that's not the way that they heard it necessarily. That's right. right. Last text, Deuteronomy 18, and then we'll go. Deuteronomy 18. This is actually a, uh, this is a messianic prophecy I forgot. Um, in verse uh, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, that's Sinai, in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what have they, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you 
from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I commanded him. I command him and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. That is a prophecy of Christ. It's not very detailed. It's just that he's going to be a lawgiver. Okay? Now look at this. Verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You will not be afraid of him. Okay. Here's a little question then to end with. So I say I'm a prophet. And I say... Okay, so I prophesy, thus says the Lord, that Christ will come back in April 17th, because that's my birthday, so that's a nice date, April 17th, 2030. What do you have to do? What do you have to do? Wait until April 17th, 2030, or, you know wait for Harold Camping to be shown that he's wrong again. Okay? And call him a false prophet. But hold on a minute. That only works if the words mean what they say. That's the only way you can test a a prophet, isn't it? What if the words change their meaning down through time? What if they can be spiritualized? The prophet can say, oh yeah, but I, I mean, I didn't mean it literally. You're not into that literal interpretation, are you? I mean, you've got to interpret it by the first coming of Christ. Or by this. Or, do you see? Then, you can't test the prophet. Because it can mean anything you want. You've, you know, you've got a wax nose, basically. You bend it any way that you want to bend it. Okay? So, I hope you can see that the test of a prophet is only useful if the prophet means what he says and therefore again this spiritualization cannot work you can't do it that because the only way that you can test a prophet is if a prophet means it literally